What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This is indeed EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. This is our program that is geared primarily for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. But also, if you have a question about the Catholic faith, if you're in dialogue perhaps with a non-Catholic and uh, they've posed a question that you're struggling with, we'd be happy to take a swing at that question today on Call to Communion. Uh, Maybe you've got a beef with the Catholic Church. We would love to discuss that with you as well. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 2712985. And you can always uh, send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. And Dr. David Anders, our gracious host, has just reminded me that some people of his persuasion may not have a beef with anything, but would rather have a lentil with something. There you go. Yeah. You. You. <laughs> You, you know, it's 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 like my father used to say. He worked for uh, for a period of time for um, a Jewish family that owned a company that they had hired him to kind of take care of the day to day for. Mm-hmm. And he would often say that you know Jewish people will tell you the best Jewish jokes. And oh yeah, I'm true. learning with you that vegetarians will tell you the best vegetarian. Well, jokes. you know, I remember reading. I think it was uh, Clement of Alexandria. And he was talking about, he talked a lot about diet, what you should eat and shouldn't eat. And I remember, it was either Clement or one of the Desert Fathers, who had a problem with uh, with leeks. And thought they were a, kind of like a luxury item and you shouldn't eat leeks. And I thought, that's going too far, man. That's going too far. Hey, yeah. that's, you'd, have, you'd, have, you'd have wiped out the Israelites in Egypt a lot quicker if you'd have got rid of leeks, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, give us a call at 833 I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Michael McCall, our celebrity producer, spinning the dials behind the glass, keeping us on the air. Matt Gubensky is your uh, phone screener today. So, as my lovely wife, Johnette, says, give Matt a howdy hey when you call him uh, today. And uh, Rich Jesse is taking care of our social media efforts. So, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, you've already heard from him, the aforementioned Dr. David Anders. How are you other than feeling a little cheeky with your vegetarian humor? Oh, you know, I'm doing fine. They, uh, my, my, my other job has, uh, we got the week off this week, you know, at the at the office. Yeah. So it's been kind of a relaxed weekend. I've enjoyed that. <laughs> Uh, Luke writes in, is the is the Eucharist a means to forgive sins, or must your sins be forgiven before approaching the sacrament? Yes and yes. <laughs> Both and. So uh, the Eucharist can atone for venial sin, 
but one inappropriately approaches the Eucharist in the state of mortal sin. If you do so, it's a sacrilegious communion. St. Paul has something to say about that in his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and uh, you do need to prepare yourself with sacramental confession if you're conscious of grave sin before receiving the host. However, as you know, when we go to Mass, we all pray the confidior. We make a confession of sin, ask for the intercession of the saints and God's forgiveness and grace in our lives. And so we, we, we you know, all of us sin in a myriad of ways every day, and, and uh, some of them weighty and some of them minor, and the Eucharist and the Mass in general can, uh, can help us reconcile to God over those minor issues. But you do need the sacrament of reconciliation for the major ones. Here's a good question from Van, and I've, I've got a... a, a it's not really a snarky answer, but an answer from my childhood that I could give to Van. But he says, what is the reason Catholics wear a brown scapular? Right. Thanks. So there is a devotion specifically associated with the brown scapular. Now, scapular is, uh, you know, the ones you see the people wear are typically about, oh, about a, you know, about an inch, uh, about an inch long and maybe three quarters of an inch wide. Um, but originally the scapular is part of the religious habit, and so it would be, you know, like the size of a person's chest. Um, and uh, uh, so in particularly, there's a, there's a devotion associated with St. Simon Stock, um, uh, apparition of Our Lady, when she said if a person wears the brown scapular. And this is a way of associating yourself with the religious order, Stock's religious order. And, and see, the idea behind that is that a, a person can— can become associated with the graces and the charisms and the uh, and the merits of a of another person or another group, and it's a way of sort of linking yourself up to Stock's religious order, and uh, and seeking to be a part of their spirituality, uh, and wearing the scapular is a kind of sign of that commitment to that to that dedicated religious way of life. Uh, that if a person wears the brown scapular, that's scapular, the certain t- promises on through her intercession will will accrue. Now, the way to understand that uh, is that you know any devotion that we practice is effective in us insofar as we have the proper disposition, which means faith and charity. And so, when Catholics, whether they wear the brown scapular or whether they wear the, they wear the miraculous medal or a Saint Christopher or whatever it might be, uh, if you take those things to be sort of um, good luck charms or magical amulets that work uh, automatically without the proper disposition, that's to take them in a superstitious manner. But if they inspire in you greater devotion and hope in Our Lady's intercession and deeper faith, hope, and charity, then they're doing their job and those promises will be fulfilled in you. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Kevin wants to know if it's impossible to avoid purgatory. I hope not. Uh, it is not impossible to uh, to avoid, avoid purgatory. All of the canonized saints avoided purgatory, and, uh, and a great many of the uncanonized saints avoided purgatory. So, yes, you, you, Jesus, in fact, said to St. Dismas, today you'll be with me in paradise. He, his, he did his purgatory on earth uh, at Calvary with Jesus. So you do not have to go to purgatory. Uh, that was Mother Angelica's hope. Absolutely. She said you don't want to aim for purgatory because if you miss, that's bad. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
stopping you from becoming a Catholic? That's the question we ask here on EWTN's Calls to Communion. Got a great item from the, uh, from the, for the month of December from EWTN Publishing, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. Uh, this book is drawn from Mother's popular biblical spirituality TV series. Uh, through her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections, you'll learn to enter into each passage and experience God's love and guidance like never before. Mother's Life Lessons will show you how to stop looking back in order to look ahead and how to enjoy the promises of God. You'll see the importance of consulting the Lord in all things and the power of your prayers in helping convert sinners, even at the last moment of their lives. You'll discover how deeply you're cherished by God and how close he is to you, especially in difficult times. Uh, You'll learn how similar to yours were the struggles of biblical figures who learned the hard way, uh, the means by which you can release an ocean of God's mercy in the world, and much, much more. Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis, available at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. First up today is Karen. She is in South Florida, a first-time caller, listening on the EWTN app. Thanks so much for holding, Karen. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for you today? Well, I'm uh, I'm an old lady now, but when I was uh, in college, uh, about that time, the Church changed uh, the... Uh, the rules on eating meat on not eating meat on Friday. And over the years, I've thought, well, what happened to the people who died and they had that mortal sin on their soul that they ate meat on Friday? Um, did they, you know, get a get out of hell free card? Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So, what 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 changed? Uh, in the church was no no dogma about the nature of sin. It was rather a canon uh, governing the lives of Catholics, imposing the law of, of abstinence from meat on Friday and, and changing that and, and removing that, that, that law. So nothing about the nature of sin changed, nothing about the nature of the moral life changed. What did change is that Catholics were no longer obliged to fast from meat on Friday. And the way mortal sin works, is, for sin to be mortal— uh, the subject matter has to be grave. A person needs to commit the sin freely, with not under compulsion, and they need to understand that what they do is gravely wrong. Now, if you study the documents of the Church, the dogmas of the Church, about the nature of mortal sin, um, I don't think you will find any magisterial statement saying that breaking the, the law of, of abstinence on, on Fridays under the 1917 Code of Canon Law is in fact a mortal sin. I'm I'm not saying that it is or it isn't. I'm just saying that's that would be a kind of a theological opinion about how severe a sin you should consider that. I think clearly anybody who thinks about it would recognize that however serious it is to follow the church's rules on fasting and abstinence, um, they're of a different order from something like adultery or murder or apostasy. I mean that those are the kind of the the big whammy sins and we ought to obey the church's teaching on fasting and absence. We should obey everything the church asks us to do because she's our mother and she prescribes these things for our benefit. Um, but one sin differs from another sin in gravity, and I think it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that this is not one of the graver sins compared to the to the heavy hitters. Now, um, we, we also find when you study mortal sin in the church's theology that it's very rare 
to find a moral theologian that will just state, if you do this, period, it is a mortal sin. And the the reason why is that um, there can be mitigating factors. And the, the Catechism talks about the mitigating factors that can lessen the gravity of a particular sin or increase the gravity. Um, so, for example, uh, let's say you have a cleric, you have a priest, and his, his job in life uh, is to celebrate the sacraments worthily, to serve the people of God in charity, to be a kind of father and example to his community. For a priest like that, uh, say, to stand up on uh, on a holy day of obligation or a Good Friday or even a Friday during uh, not during Lent under the old code and to and to uh, flaunt the fact that he is in a kind of um, obstinate defiance of the church's teaching would cause scandal to the faithful. That would be a really really serious offense. Um, you know what if you're a you know a a, a college kid who's out having fun with his friends and kind of loses track of himself and eats a pepperoni pizza without thinking about it. Those are not the same sin. Those are not the same sin. It, clearly they're not. One is far more grave than another. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the safe thing to do is when in doubt, go to confession. When in doubt, go to confession. I think the unsafe thing to do is to pass judgment about people's souls and to say, well, I know that person is in hell because, say, they ate meat on Friday. I can't know that. I really, that's really for God to decide. It is serious to obey the church, um, but I'm not going to form the judgment. I don't think any sound theologian would form the judgment. I know for a fact that that soul is in hell because they ate meat on Friday. I, I don't think that's the way we would do it. Um, in terms of the question, if someone disobeys the church— and the church subsequently changes the law so that an activity that was once prescribed now becomes licit, that doesn't—the sin prior would not have been eating meat. It would have been disobeying the law of the church. See, the positive law of the church, just like the speed limit, is a thing that could be changed, right? There's nothing intrinsic about 55 miles an hour that makes it, like, the perfect heavenly celestial speed limit— what, what matters is that we ob- obey the civil government when it prescribes things for the common good. Same thing applies in the life of the church. We need to obey the church's teaching when they prescribe rules for the common good of the Christian faithful. The moral quality of the act has to do with the question of obedience, not the question of meat per se. Does that clear it up a little, Karen? Yes, that makes sense. Thank you. Well, God bless you. We appreciate Thank the you. phone call. Thank you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Next stop is Cleveland, Ohio. Marianne is another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marianne, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hi, Dr. David. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. How about you? Hi. I'm doing okay. Thanks for taking my call. I'll uh, preface this by saying I'm a little nervous. I've never um, spoken on the radio. Um, But I would love your help with something. Um, I was raised Catholic, had a beautiful um, upbringing in the church, Um, even have an aunt that's a nun, so I have that additional blessing. Um, But when some of the scandal happened um, a couple decades ago, uh, 15 years ago, with the priest, and um, some of the misdeeds, I personally fell away from the Church. Um, I believe in forgiveness, but the fact that the Church kind of moved people around um, made me confused. 
I'm happy to say I've found my way back home. Um, I know I'm supposed to be where I'm supposed to be. But my concern is now, how do I express this to people when I say, hey, I've rediscovered my faith? And, of course, um, I want to get them excited, too. Um, what steps have been done by the church to maybe prevent the same thing happen moving forward? And how can I express the grace to be given to everyone the best? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So a lot to say here. The specific question you asked, what has been done in the Church to, to, to lessen the odds of clerical abuse of children or vulnerable people, a lot has been done. A lot has been done. And I think the Catholic Church really has been at the forefront of implementing what the best practices are for protection of children. When I'm not on the radio, my other job is working for a Catholic diocese. I, I work in the chancery for the bishop, and uh, it, it, over over the years, different times, I've had the purview over the question of protection of children in our diocese. At least I supervise that office, and so I know the regime quite intimately. And uh, I can tell you that there are very strict protocols in place for the protection of children. There are rules uh, for you know how many people need to be in the room if there's a minor there. Uh, you know under what circumstances can adults be alone with minors? Um, you know, in church activities, adults, whether clerics or not, uh, have to have gone through extensive youth protection training to look for, you know, the, the signs of abuse, to look for um, problematic behaviors, what are the kind of uh, boundary issues that have to be respected. The, all these kinds of issues are in play to protect kids. And, uh, and we, you know, we get audited by an outside auditing firm on an annual basis that will sometimes make recommendations about uh, you know, well, maybe you should do this different, maybe you should do that different. And so there's a there's an ongoing concern for that process. And I know, I can speak to my own diocese here, I, I can't speak universally, but I know within my own diocese, uh, we haven't had a, a credible accusation of abuse against a cleric, uh, I believe since these protocols have gone into effect. And that's, we're coming up on, well, we've been over 20 years now, I think this has been the been the situation. And I know that um, that accusations against clerics in general have gone have gone way 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 down. Where you typically find problems in the Catholic Church, and not just the Catholic Church, but I think in all, a lot of agencies, is with people who who haven't been trained, and that does not include the clergy, all of whom are scrupulously trained in this now. But lay volunteers, lay lay people that work with kids, and it's usually not straight up sexual abuse. The issues that you would find would be, well, you know, what we might call boundary violations, where there hasn't been an overtly sexual act, but somebody did something imprudent, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, you shouldn't have been alone in that room, right? That sort of thing, um, and you still see that pop up occasionally, but it's 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 uh, it's rarely. Um, something that's uh, it doesn't come anywhere close to the level of egregious offense that that you know, became so scandalous 20 years ago. Um, I would also say that when considering the Catholic Church and the history of of uh, clerical sex abuse, it is an absolutely horrible thing, and I don't want to take anything away from the trauma of people who have suffered and the and the vile evil of those that were perpetrators. But I do want to put it in in context, and the rates of child sex abuse within the Catholic Church are not greater than, in fact, they are less than the rates of sex abuse that you find in other kinds of social institutions that, that work with kids. There was a scholar by the name of Carol Shakeshaft that did an analysis of a public school system in one of our uh, 50 U.S. states and found that the rates of child sexual abuse in this particular public school system was, um, uh, was considerably higher 
than the rates of sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, I myself went to a private high school, an independent private high school that was non-sectarian. It was not a religious school. And uh, recently, and it was a small school. I think I had maybe 50 kids in my graduating class, 55 kids. Um, and uh, my school recently did, oh, within, let's say, the last five years, um, a retrospective study inquiring among alumni about you know who might have been a victim of uh, boundary violations or sex abuse from faculty. And they found out that something like, I'm trying to remember the exact number, um, but it was at least five faculty members who were on staff during my tenure, you know, the five years I was in that school, uh, were all implicated in, in either sexual abuse of children or really inappropriate behaviors. And five was an extremely high percentage, right? Now, that barely made the news because it was an independent private high school in rural Alabama. Um, and my point in mentioning that is that the Catholic scandals make the news because of the nature of, the, of Catholicism as an institution, right? Um, it doesn't mean that the Catholic Church is, is, has the highest level of sex abuse. It has the highest level of visibility. So when these kinds of scandals occur, they're going to hit the headlines. And to be quite honest, the Catholic Church is a much more attractive target for uh, plaintiff's attorneys, for litigants. You know, the perception is that there are deeper pockets. The, the, the governmental structure of the Catholic Church, the way ownership of property is structured, these kinds of things mean that there are big pots of money at the end of the line for plaintiff's attorneys who file class action lawsuits, where that's not going to be the case, say, in the Southern Baptist denomination, which has also had its, its revelations about sex abuse, because of the way the Southern Baptist Convention is structured, each, end, each congregation is independent, and the vast majority of them don't have any money to go after. There's a few small congregations that do have a lot of money, but many of them don't. Um, so these kinds of factors play in. Then there's, there is just the public spin that you have to take into consideration as well. There is, I believe, and I think it's well documented, a kind of deeply anti-Catholic prejudice that still pervades American civilization. Uh, Philip Jenkins, who's not a Catholic, by the way, has written an interesting book on the topic called The New Anti-Catholicism, The Last Acceptable Prejudice, that I think I think very successfully documents the presence of an anti-Catholic prejudice among the news media and, uh, and, uh, and, and certain members of the government and so forth. So it's horrible what happened to kids, and the bishops who move priests around are unconscionable. There's no excuse for their behavior, and and, and we regard them as really horrific people. Um, but I do think it's important to place those abuses in context and realize that people who abuse children have always sought out children and sought positions in society that give them access to children. Um, that is, you know, something like 1% to 2% of the population, and those numbers aren't any different within Catholicism. <clears throat> Does that help, Marianne? Appreciate very much so, and I, and I will say I had, and everyone I know in the church I was raised in had a beautiful experience, so um, I feel great about the, I, you taught me a lot that I didn't know, and um, I appreciate you taking my call, and you made it very easy. I was a little nervous to come on, but blessings to you, thank you, and again, I'm glad to be back home. Uh, I appreciate that. Now, I will say this, one thing that we have learned from the scandals is that Parents and adults in, in positions of responsibility now know uh, not to take anything at face value. And so it's, it's good that everybody has a good experience. But just because you've had a good experience with a teacher or a principal or a priest doesn't mean you can entrust your kids to them without scrutiny. 
God bless you, Marianne. Merry Christmas. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Still a couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We head to Melbourne, Florida next. Patty is listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Patty, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call and Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, My question is, as a fairly new converted Catholic, um, born and raised in a Protestant religion, United Methodist, um, how do I know and how do I get peace in knowing or hopefully knowing <coughs> my parents and grandparents who are not Catholic, um, maybe either eventually going to heaven or in heaven? And how do I get peace with that? Because they weren't Catholic growing up and 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 died not being Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, becoming Catholic, for me personally, was something that alleviated precisely the kind of anxiety that you're, that you're discussing. Because I grew up in the evangelical Protestant church where I was taught that in order to go to heaven, a person needed to make a conscious, explicit act of faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice who paid for all of my sins, and I needed to recognize, intellectually recognize, that nothing I could do would save myself, and that I needed to trust Christ entirely and Him alone for my salvation, and that I could add nothing to that. It was salvation by faith alone. And if I didn't have that understanding and affirm that explicitly, consciously, then I would go to hell, and anybody else who, who lacked that explicit affirmation would go to hell. So the world was pretty easily divided into the evangelical Christians, the small percentage of the human population, evangelical Christians, who held that particular view of salvation, who we all knew we were going to heaven. We knew for sure we were going to heaven. That was part of the promise. You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Versus the rest of the world that we were sure were going to hell. Then I became Catholic, and I found out that the, that the accounting in the Catholic Church is entirely different. First of all, As a Catholic, I don't know for sure that I'm going to heaven. In fact, it is a dogma of the faith that I cannot know for sure that I'm going to heaven. Um, What I can know for sure is that there is grace available for me to go to heaven, and I know where that grace is found. It is found principally within the teaching and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. But here is the big difference between being Catholic and when I was Protestant. The Church also teaches that that grace is extended in an extraordinary way outside of the Catholic Church, and is offered in a real way, a way to which people can genuinely respond to every human being who is alive on the planet. And so what that means is, I cannot look at any human being. I don't care if they're an atheist, I don't care if they're a Hindu, I don't care if they're a Buddhist. I can't look at any human being and say, I know for sure that that person either is going to hell or has gone to hell. I don't know that. I don't know that. 
and, uh, and the church teaches that God desires everyone to be saved and has made it possible for everyone to be saved. And so the question, if I were going to try to evaluate, you know, to have a, to have a basis for hope in this person's salvation or not, this is not infallible, but it would be things like, well, did they live a virtuous life? Did they, did they have something like the virtue of faith, even if it wasn't explicit faith in all of the dogmas of Catholicism? Was there a disposition to believe the truth about God or a desire to know the truth about God? Uh, John Carroll, who was the first bishop of the United States, drew a distinction between, he said, the membership of the Catholic Church and communion in the Catholic Church. One of them, he said, would be, you know, the, the card-carrying members who were explicitly Catholic, and, you know, when they check into the hospital and they say, religion, you're right, Catholic, all right? Then, th- th- uh, then there are those that are in communion, and he says the, the latter group includes all people of goodwill who have a disposition to believe the truth about God if it were offered to them, and a desire to live a holy and just life and obey their conscience. And, uh, and if they fit that, gr- that larger distinction, that larger category, then I have as strong a basis for hope in their salvation as I would have in my own. Does that give you some comfort, Patty? Absolutely it does, yes. Thank you so much. I you're, appreciate that. You're very welcome. Merry Christmas. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. That's the number John used, another first-time caller in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, listening on JMJ Radio. John, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, I have, you know, I've been listening to a few Protestant uh, uh, preachers and, and reading literature and so forth, and I'm Catholic, and I wonder if in the Catholic Church, I haven't heard it so, and in a lot of the writings, uh, uh, indicating that, you know, uh, problems that people experience are frequently, and uh, and some of the Protestant Church say, always a chastisement in order to... uh, uh, sanctify people or, or move them in the direction of, uh, you know, becoming more involved in their uh, salvation. And I, I wonder if, you know, I know you, you know, you've got Saint, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas and all of those. Is any of that a sentiment reflected in any of the writings that you know? Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So not only does the Catholic Church not blame all evil on God's chastisement. Uh, it teaches the exact opposite, namely that that much of the evil that we suffer um, is allowed in the providence of God uh, in order to conform us more perfectly to Christ and to give us an opportunity to merit. And so I can't think of a more vivid symbol of this than the stigmata of Francis of Assisi. So, you know, Francis is regarded by many people as, if not the holiest saint after the Blessed Virgin, pretty darn close. He's, he's way up there in the hierarchy of holiness of saints. And he bore in his body the, the signs and the wounds of Christ's own suffering. Those that God loves, he will sometimes give an opportunity to suffer to conform them more perfectly to Jesus. So this, this would not be chastisement. This would be an opportunity for merit. Um, now, chastisement can happen. A person can suffer, and I, I think, for example, no better example here than, say, you know, the drug addict 
who uh, who willingly gives themselves up to dissipation and and sensual indulgence, and the the object of their fascination and obsession eats away their flesh and destroys their minds. I mean that that's obviously the sin contains within it its own punishment. Sexually transmitted diseases could be another example of you know somebody who goes off into an immoral lifestyle and then bears the penalty in their own body for what they've done. Um, but no, clearly not all physical evil that we would suffer, or even moral evil at the hands of evil people, constitutes chastisement. Again, the the, the premier example, of course, would be the the evil that Christ suffered. Christ himself suffered at the hands of evil men, uh, excruciating torture. It was not punishment inflicted by God. It was it was unjust punishment inflicted by men. Christ's willing self-surrender to that was regarded by God as meritorious. He, he, can, he does the same thing with us, gives us the opportunity to merit through this, uh, this, uh, this veil of tears and trial and tribulation. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Braden called from Baton Rouge and was unable to hold uh, on the line. But his question was, he loves the works of Rudyard Kipling, and he was halfway through memorizing a poem of his when he found out that he was a Freemason. Now he wants to know if he should avoid his works. Right, Braden. I really appreciate the question. It depends entirely on your own spiritual disposition. So there is a stage of the spiritual life uh, where, in which I would advise a person who's Catholic or growing in their Catholic faith or growing in their knowledge of the Catholic faith to avoid literature that would be spiritually unsound or unsafe for them. Um, and that would be someone who doesn't know the faith, doesn't really have, you know, the sense of the faith and of the church, uh, doesn't have the sort of the taste in their mouth to distinguish true from false, um, and, uh, and might be tempted uh, might be confused, be led into sort of syncretistic ideas or false ideas about the nature of God or redemption of the moral life. A person like that who's pre- impressionable and vulnerable and naive uh, should probably just stick to safe Catholic authors. But for someone who's more mature in their faith, has a better understanding of it, has uh, has good critical sense, um, then I think it is not only safe but sometimes obligatory to read widely. I mean, I would not be able to do what I do for a living. I couldn't sit here and answer questions about the Catholic faith and answer objections if I had not immersed myself in literature that was antagonistic to Catholicism, not just indifferent, but actually antagonistic. I've read uh, authors from every tradition and every philosophical point of view um, because I'm trying to educate myself, and and there are people who need to do that, but it's not for everybody. So it really kind of it depends on where you are in your spiritual life, and you might want to discern this with the help of a spiritual director. If you think that you have the kind of theological acumen and maturity that you can read non-Catholic literature that might be challenging, then I would say Kipling's a brilliant author. I personally enjoy Kipling quite a lot. But if it's a stumbling block for you, then you you put him on the shelf for a while. And for that matter, there's Catholic literature that you have to put on the shelf for a while. I remember when I was a new convert to Catholicism, I uh, I picked up Teresa of Avila, and I read her, and I felt like she just actually just just you know kicked me in the backside and knocked me flat and I, discouraged me because of how lofty her spirituality was. And I remember going to Father Mark here at EWTN, and I was in the confessional. And I said, Father Mark, I'm reading. Teresa of Avila, and she's just kicking my backside, man, I'm totally discouraged. And he said to me, in his totally calm Father Mark way, well, maybe you're not ready for Teresa of Avila. Great piece of advice. 
and one of the I, other, I have subsequently read her, you know, through yeah. and through. But that one was of the other on. uh, friars once told me that when they were in seminary formation, that they he they had one of their professors told them that they're not even to walk past a volume of John of the Cross <laughs> until they are in their third year of theology. Good advice. <laughs> Good advice. Thanks so much. We appreciate that question, Braden. Next up is Bob in New Orleans, Louisiana, another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bob, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, Dr. Andrews, I'm reading an incredible book about the saints, and I noticed that so many of them have the gifting, or they're called victim souls. And then I, I came across the word uh, expiation today, You know, where Christ takes all of our sins, and the sins of the world. And I, I just wondered, if, if Christ takes all of our sins and the sins of the world, why are these saints called to be victim souls to suffer for the sins of other people, among yeah, other things? Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, St. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, um, uh, verse 20 and following, rather, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, the, <clears throat> the reason that the death of Christ has atoning power on our behalf is because Christ's death was morally exemplary, right? He lived an exemplary life. He surrendered himself to martyrdom, suffering at the hands of evil people, to show us what love looks like. And, of course, his actions were meritorious, and they merited reward from God. So if the purpose of redemption is to transform us into charity, to, to unite us to the heart of God, which is charitable, you can't be charitable in this life without a willingness to suffer out of love for other people. I mean, that's just what charity means. When you think about a parent, the things that a parent is willing to undergo for the sake of their child or, or a spouse for their, for their spouse, I mean, you, you will go to any length, you'll make any sacrifice for those that you deeply love. The goal of redemption is to have our lives transformed in love. You, you, it's unthinkable to say, I want to be loving, but please spare me the suffering. Like, that, that's a non sequitur. That's an oxymoron. Can't do that. Got a great opportunity for you. If maybe you've wanted to get involved in a Bible study and just couldn't find one you liked or couldn't get to a location to be with one, we've got one for you right here on EWTN Radio, Scripture and Tradition with Father Mitch Paqua. You can hear it Saturday mornings at 6 Eastern Time, or if it's more convenient, Sunday afternoon at 1 Eastern Time. Uh, Father Mitch digs into sacred scripture and the tradition of the Catholic Church in this very interactive Bible study program. That's Scripture and Tradition with Father Mitch Paqua. Saturday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, or Sunday afternoon, 1 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Mary. You know, I'm very comfortable with how God made me, and I know that it was his perfect plan to make me this way, but if I ever wanted to be anything other than what I am, it would be to be a woman simply so that I could be named Mary. Um. Uh... I like you as Jack, personally, but I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> Mary is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania listening on the EWTN app. Mary, welcome to the program. You're on with Dr. Andrews. Yes, Dr. Andrews, thank you for taking my call. I'm a Pennsylvania doctor. So I called to find out I'm a devotee of John Murphy. Each time I go to another country, I have to unchange. So what I advise on the time change, 
hablar en el United States, en Africa, en nuestro uh, uh, New México. But then I don't know what I should say it. Uh, because I adapt to your class or I should continue on my trainer class in the United States. So let me just, for the benefit of our listeners who may have had a little trouble with Mary's phone, um, she's asking that uh, she's a devotee of the Divine Mercy Prayer, and she travels internationally, and she wants to know, should she say the Divine Mercy Chaplet at 3 o'clock where she lives or at 3 o'clock where she's at? Yeah, so I have two things to say about this. The first one is that if you attend to the words of the promise that was given by Christ to St. Faustina— concerning praying the Divine Mercy at 3 o'clock. Uh, quite literally, he says, uh, as often you he- as you hear the clock strike the third hour, immerse yourself in my mercy. So if you want to take that prophecy, that, that, uh, that promise quite literally, wherever you happen to be standing that the clock would strike three, right, that would be, that would be the time to pray it. So that would be in the time zone that you find yourself. Um, now, having said that, I would like to encourage people all devotions, and particularly private revelations that have been given to the Church for the edification of the faithful and for our growth and holiness, must be interpreted in line with the dogmas of the faith and and not the other way around. So it's the teaching of the Church that is the public teaching of the Church that's determinative, and then we interpret the private revelations in light of that. And what the Church tells us is essential for salvation is that we have, that we have charity in our hearts— and charity, a charity that presumes a transformation in virtue. So really all the virtues need to be fully activated in us. And so for, for any devotion to bring us to salvation, it does it because it works charity within us. It, it inspires our hope. It, it enlivens our faith. Uh, it moves us to practices and, uh, and habits that transform our way of being in the world, that make us more just and temperate and loving, faithful people. Um, it doesn't work as a kind of, uh, you know, magic charm. Like, you know, you have to say these words exactly at this hour. If you don't get that exactly right, then it's all lost on you. That, that doesn't work that way. And another example would be the rosary. Think about the number of promises we have from the Blessed Virgin about the benefits of the rosary. And yet every spiritual director will tell you, if you begin the rosary and you, you, you get caught up halfway through the first decade in some sort of mystical contemplation of God, you put the rosary gown and you go with the mystical contemplation. It's better to be awash in love than to mechanically repeat the formula. The formula is there to serve a greater end, which is to bring us to charity. And so I would, it's good to say the Divine Mercy Chaplet, it's good to say it at three, it's good to reflect on those promises to grow in, in hope and so forth, but I wouldn't be so slavishly attached to the formula that I become scrupulous about exact performance, that if I mess up in one small detail, that somehow it's not going to take. That's not the way the heart of God works. It's not the way the heart of Christ works. The whole thing is there just to transform us into charity. We head next to Chicago, Illinois. Sandra is another first-time caller listening at EWTN.com. Sandra, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi there. Uh, thank you for that wonderful answer uh, regarding the rosary, because lots of times I do go into different spaces while I'm saying it, and I certainly love that. But I'm calling about, I I went to Mass this morning, and uh, part of the reading from John said that, you know, God is only light and there is no darkness in God. And it set me into contemplating, um, you know, the fact that God created, in Genesis, he created the earth, 
or, you know, everything, really, including the darkness. And so how could God not be in darkness? Am I misunderstanding or misapplying two things? Yeah, what a great question. I really appreciate that. So the word darkness here, of course, is an analogous concept. And we're not talking about physical darkness, you know, the absence of... uh, of, of light beams, you know, emanating from some electromagnetic source like the sun or something like that. That's not that's not the kind of darkness. We're not talking about the physical property of darkness. Um, we're talking here about about uh, the heart that has closed itself off to the truth about God in its own self love and concupiscence. Um, so darkness here is being used in a metaphorical sense to describe the moral state of people that are resistant to the truth about God. That's that's the darkness that doesn't comprehend God, not not physical darkness, where you're absolutely right, God is present everywhere throughout the physical universe, even when you turn off your flashlight. Does that make sense, Sandra? Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Larry in Kenosha, Wisconsin, listening on WSFI Radio. Larry, you're on with Dr. Anders. Yes, I I have two, one question and a statement. Uh, I was listening to the show before you guys, and it was a particular mon- Monday, and I don't remember when. Uh, I only get to listen to you guys off and on. Uh, but there was a priest on there, and somebody asked, said, in the Bible, it says God forgets, forgives, and forgets. And he said, God didn't say that. Ben Franklin said that, and I kind of chuckle at that. But my other, my question is, I was looking at the list of popes, and I noticed that some of them kind of repeated themselves sometimes. And I called up a priest here, and I said, Why is that? And he said, Well, back in those days, something those days when it was done. Uh, these cardinals would bribe some other cardinals for their votes, and then they turned out bad, and then they uh, got rid of them. But then they run again, and they do the same thing. Is that true or not? Um, okay, so generally speaking, popes serve until they're dead, right? There's not a there's not a there's not a term limit on the papacy except mortality. Occasionally, in in Catholic history that I have been popes that resigned. Most recently, Pope Benedict XVI resigned. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're elected to the papacy, you're 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 pope for life. Now, so the the idea of like you know serving a term and leaving office and coming back that's that's not normal. Uh, now, have popes bribed their way to the papacy? Absolutely, yes. To be sure, yes. There, this is the sin of simony. This is called buying church offices or or spiritual goods, and so. Uh, popes have have bought their way into office. Bishops have bought their way into office. Um, uh, yeah, there have been all kinds of abuses of of church office and church property over the centuries. Uh, so, how do we as Catholics think about that? How do we think about that? Well, one one thing is that the church has instituted policies uh, to to reduce the risk of that happening. Of course, it's a crime in canon law, and the way the College of Cardinals is set up. Um, it's uh, it'd be difficult to to do that, right? Um, but uh, but if it does happen or has happened in the past, then we would regard those popes as not exemplary popes. We would think they were very bad people to do that, and potentially they personally might go to hell, right? So there's nothing in Catholic doctrine that guarantees that a pope goes to heaven or that a bishop goes to heaven. 
uh, you know, in Catholic imagination, literature like Dante's Inferno is famous for populating hell and purgatory with popes and, and bishops and priests, right? No guarantee of heaven just because you hold the office. The office bestows a responsibility on the office holder, does not bestow a guarantee that the office holder will fulfill those duties in a worthy manner. And uh, this is why, if memory serves me correct, I believe the room um, that the Pope vests in before he makes his first appearance um, on the balcony there uh, at St. Peter's is something like the Room of Tears. I'm not getting the name exactly right, because uh, popes who assume the papal office uh, can become overwhelmed by emotion at the thought of the weight of responsibility that's being laid upon them and the judgment that they will face. That's why St. James admonishes many people are not to seek to become teachers because teachers will be held to a higher standard. Um, if mere teachers are held to a higher standard, think about the standard that God will hold popes to. He will hold them to an extremely high standard. And those that have taken their office in immoral ways, uh, it will not go well for them on the Day of Judgment. Uh, once again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Uh, probably a little close to the end of the program to get you on today. But if you call that number after 4 p.m. Eastern Time, any day Monday through Friday, then you can leave a listener comment line call, and we may get to that uh, telephone call somewhere down the road. Ryan wants to know how he can explain that the Eucharist is not just a symbol. Um, well, I think that you just said it. The Eucharist is not just a symbol, right? Uh, all we can do as Catholics is to say why we believe in the real presence of Christ. That's on the authority of Jesus himself. And what we mean by the real presence of Christ, and we mean something very specific by it, and uh, more detailed than I can answer in the remainder of this telephone call. Uh, but, uh, but in terms of, of, I can't prove the doctrine other than through Christ's words, right? There's no independent test of Christ, no, no microscope, no, uh, you know, no, no scale is going to detect the presence of Christ. It's accessible only by faith. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Rich Jesse. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of EWTN's Open, not Open Line, EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Back at it tomorrow. Until we get together then, God bless.